The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, we are starting a new series today. And uh, the series is called The Art of Discipline. The Art of Discipline. You see the sign there. And uh, uh, in this three-week series, it's going to be a short series. We're going to be digging into spiritual disciplines. And so this week, we're going to look at prayer. Next week, we'll look at what it is to, to meditate on God's Word. And then the final week in the series, we'll spend on fasting. And, uh, and the reason we're, we're calling this series The Art of Discipline is, uh, is taken from a, a quote that I got uh, from, from reading... I didn't read the whole thing, all right, but Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And, uh, and this, this quote sort of inspired me, and, and I, I think it fits uh, what we're going for here. So listen to this quote. He says this, But the virtues we get by first exercising them, as also happens in the case of the arts as well. For the things we have to learn before we can do them, we learn by doing them. For example, men become builders by building, and lyre players by playing the lyre. So too, we become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, brave by doing brave acts. And so what's he saying here? He's saying, so just as the artist masters his craft by spending hours at it, you spend hours at at the wheel making the pottery, hours at the guitar learning how to play. He says in order to be virtuous, you need to spend hours and days doing virtuous things. And so then in the same vein, I would say for Acts Church Leander, for us to be a deeply spiritual church, we need to regularly practice spiritual things. That's the idea here. That's the, the art of discipline. And now this isn't about being spiritual for, for the sake of being spiritual, you know, because Oprah thinks it's cool. Uh, this is, is about becoming deeply spiritual people because we're made for it. That, that in the beginning, God made us to be in communion with him. And that when we're deeply connected to our creator, we're, we're most who we're meant to be. We're most in line with the way that God would have us live. And when we do that, we have the greatest effect in the world. Uh, here's what I mean. Uh, second to my boy Martin Luther, uh, my favorite theologian, second favorite theologian, is, is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I tried to name Titus that. Melissa wouldn't have it. So if you think Titus is weird, could have been worse. Uh, and uh, and uh, his, his books, uh, Life Together and, and The Cost of Discipleship, were probably two of the most formative books in my entire life. Uh, but even more amazing than his writing was his life. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian who lived in Germany during World War II. And, and he was a theologian who actively opposed Hitler's reign. And he actively did whatever he could to, to help the Jewish people who were being crushed under the thumb of Nazism. And just days before the war ended, uh, Bonhoeffer was actually arrested, thrown in prison, and executed for his actions against the Third Reich. And so here's a guy whose deep convictions about Jesus led him to take some incredible action against this tidal wave of Nazism that surrounded him and ultimately cost him his life. But he's a guy who, as you can tell from that brief story, he had compassion. He had integrity. He had courage. And I don't know about you, but that's the sort of person that I'd like to be, right? I'd like to be a person that has compassion and integrity and courage. And so uh, I read this massive biography of him a couple years ago, uh, written by a guy named Eric Metaxas, and, uh, and I found something out about Bonhoeffer. He didn't stumble into that sort of character. He didn't have that sort of fortitude naturally. It wasn't an accident that he knew what the right thing to do was and then consequently gave his life in service to others. 
Now, see, Bonhoeffer was able to live the life that he did because of the practices that he engaged in that shaped him to be the person that he was. So the question we ask is, what practices were those? What sort of practices create a man like that? Well, in the book, the author Eric Metaxas describes the life of the, the seminary community that Bonhoeffer formed. And I just want to read a little bit for you. It says this, Bonhoeffer emphasized a strict daily routine and the spiritual disciplines. Each day began with a 45-minute service before breakfast and ended with a service just before bed. The services took place not in the chapel, but around the large dinner table. They began by singing a choral psalm and a hymn chosen for that day. Then there was a reading from the Old Testament. Next, they sang a set verse from a hymn, followed by a New Testament reading. The service then ended with prayer, which Bonhoeffer offered himself. This prayer, however, was very important because it treated whatever they were dealing with, whatever they truly needed to ask of God. Then came breakfast, which was very modest. Then came half an hour of meditation. Everybody went to his room and thought about scripture until he knew what it meant for him today, on that day. During this time, there had to be absolute quiet. The telephone couldn't ring. Nobody could walk around. One meditated on the same verse for an entire week, a half hour each day. Now, I'll stop there. It actually goes further. But I think you get the picture, right? Spiritual disciplines were the practices that shaped and formed Bonhoeffer to be the kind of man he was. The sort of guy who had the strength to stand against something as evil and heinous as Nazism, even though it cost him his life. Isn't that amazing? Just simple practices like, like worship and prayer and, and meditation and silence and community and fasting. Those sort of simple practices shaped this incredible man. And so I think, man, what would it look like if, if we actually engaged in those regularly? If we, if we dug into those seriously, do you think it might have a profound effect on our lives? Do you think it might shape us to be deeper people? I think it would. I think it would. And so the ultimate hope as we go through this series is not that I, you come here and I pontificate and, and you hear about these spiritual disciplines and think they're interesting, uh, but the hope is that you actually engage in them and that as you engage in them, God begins to shape and mold you and change you. And so let's get started without further delay. First discipline, prayer. Prayer. And uh, in our text for today, I don't know if you caught this, the, the gospel writer Luke uh, tells us why Jesus is telling this parable about prayer. In Luke 18, verse 1, he says this, uh, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so the gospel writer Luke gives us an insight into Jesus' brain, which is amazing, by the way. And we know what's going on in Jesus' brain, that Jesus is going to tell this parable so that we always pray and don't lose heart. Now, let's just think about it. He's, he's God in the flesh. Jesus God in the flesh. And he tells us this parable that we might always pray and not lose heart. It's, it's as if he knows what it's like, right? Do you ever pray again and again and again and again for something and it doesn't seem like anything gets different? If that's you, Jesus says, this story's for you. It says, if that's happened to you, this parable was written for you. And so in this story, we learn three things about how to pray. Go to the right source. Go honestly and often. Two into one. And uh, expect change. Go to the right source. Go honestly and often. Expect change. And so let's dig into the story. Look with me at verses two to three. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And so Jesus starts this parable and there's two characters, right? There's the first one, there's the judge, right? He doesn't fear God, he doesn't respect man. In other words, he's a jerk, okay? And yet, he's a judge. He's got power, he's got authority, but he's a jerk. Then on the other hand, you got this widow. And she's obviously been wronged by someone and she's demanding justice from this judge, and she's demanding justice because she had to. In the uh, court system at that time, first century Palestine, if somebody wronged you, uh, you went to court against them. Like the, the DA didn't prosecute on your behalf. Okay, Alex Cabot wasn't there. Uh, no SVU fans? All right, that's probably good. Uh, and so, uh, so you had to go and, and, and stand before the judge on your own. And so both parties go before the judge. They make their cases. And then the, the judge vindicates one party over the other. And so this widow, who would have been one of the lowest members in society, didn't have a husband, couldn't own land, wouldn't have been respected, got virtually no power, no authority, continues to go to this judge and plead that justice be done. Now, why does she go to this judge? You ever think about that? Like, like he's a jerk. Like, why is she going to this judge? Because he's the right place to go to. What else is she going to do? See, let's look at her options. One option is to just say, okay, someone's wronged me. Someone's, maybe they stole something from her, whatever it is. And, uh, and she could just stuff it, right? Just say, all right, well, they wronged me, whatever. I'm over it. Let's just move on, okay? But that wouldn't be a good thing, right? Because what if he harms her again? What if you wronged someone else? What if justice is never carried out? So that wouldn't be a good thing. All right, so then the second thing is, is she could take justice into her own hands, right? Become a vigilante, throw on the Batman mask, and, and just let it happen, right? Bring it to him, bring out justice on herself. But of course, that puts her in a morally compromising situation where she's not really much better than the one who's wronged her. And so what does she do? She continues to go to the only proper source, this judge, this judge. And I think this widow illustrates something for us and we need to take note of is, is what do you do when someone wrongs you? What do you do when someone wrongs you? Do you, do you stuff it? Ah, it's whatever. It's big, not a big deal. I'm over it. I'm over it. And then you live the rest of your days passively, aggressively towards that individual, right? Or you just let it fill up until you explode one day. We've all had that argument, right? Or what do you do when someone wrongs you? Do you, do you seek out justice on your own? You say, oh, I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them, and you speak ill of them, either to them or about them to someone else, or you harbor bitterness in your heart, and you always, always end up regretting that. You see, why do you think in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, he says, love your enemies, but the first thing he says is to pray for your enemies. Because you can't love your enemies unless you've prayed for them first. Unless you go to the right source first, do the necessary inner work with God, unless you take it to the judge, unless you pray to God, you'll never be able to love your enemies. So this may uh, come as a shock to some of you, uh, but there are, are people in this world that don't like me. They're out there, okay? It's true, I know. And, uh, and one summer when I was in college, uh, I was working at a camp, with uh, one such individual who did not like me. And, uh, and we, uh, we had a long day of cleaning, and, and I went to grab lunch, and this individual uh, thought it would be funny uh, to shove me to the back of the line. Now, I don't know, I, I don't look like much, right? Okay, but like, I'm a scrapper, you know? Like, I'm, I'm a younger brother, right? I fight dirty, 
right? It ain't about size. It's about getting the cheap shots in and then running, right? And so, so that's what crossed my mind. And I see in red, uh, but miracle of miracles, I really don't know how it happened. I found myself, instead of in a fight, uh, in my room uh, with, with a Bible in my hands. And, and I did the classic, uh, you know, open the Bible randomly and pray that God speaks to you. You've done it. And uh, I don't recommend it, but, but I did it. And, and sure enough, uh, I opened to uh, the section where, where Jesus talks about praying for your enemies. Got to be kidding me. And, and so I was like, all right, God, you know, I'll do it. And, and so I, I, uh, I prayed for my enemy in that moment, this guy who just ticked me off. And, and so I prayed, and I prayed God's blessings on him. I said, you know, bless his work. Uh, may his family do well. I was just like, any positive thing I could lavish on this dude, I, I just did that. And I did, I did this for like several weeks. I'm praying for this guy. And do you know what happened? You know what happened after praying for several weeks? This guy still doesn't like me, right? <laughs> To this day, will not accept my friend request on Facebook, all right? True story. But can I tell you, God changed my heart towards him, right? Because as I prayed to God about it, I got his perspective. I got to see, oh my gosh, God looks at this guy as someone who he loves as much as he loves me. God cares about this guy as much as he cares about me. I can't stay mad at God's kid. I can't hold on to that. See, that's why we go to the right source. That's why we pray. So if someone wrongs you, talk to God about it. In all circumstances, take it to God. You're sad. You're sick. You're anxiety-ridden. You're burnt out. You're anxious. You're stressed. Whatever it is, take it to God. You're happy. You're joyful. You're blessed. So much good stuff's going on. Take it to the right source because it's, it's only when you take it to the right source that you're able to approach your circumstances correctly because you've taken it to God and then you can engage your circumstances. So prayer starts with recognizing how necessary it is. And this is what we see as Jesus continues this parable. Look with me at the next couple verses. Uh, so this widow's been asking this judge to hear her case and then this happens. Verses four through five. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I love this part of the story, right? So, so this judge is thinking to himself, and Jesus tells us, like, So even though I'm a jerk, that's what the judge thought, I, I'm going to give this widow justice because she just keeps bugging me about her case. And now let's remember that the purpose of this parable we know from the front end is Jesus teaching us that we ought always to pray and not lose hope. And see, I think there's a reason Jesus uh, has the God figure be a judge who neither fears God nor respects man. Because sometimes that's what it can feel like to continually pray to God about the same thing. Right? There are those of you who I know for a fact... You've asked God to intervene in your life or in the life of someone you love again and again and again. And you've spent hours of prayer. I've spent some of those hours with you and it just seems like nothing is happening. It seems like God is a judge who doesn't respect anyone, doesn't care about nothing or no one, and the heavens seem deaf. And so Jesus says to you today, and he says in this text, I get it. Don't stop. Keep praying. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Keep at it. Keep praying. But he also says, be honest with God. Be honest with God. See, this judge is, is obviously annoyed by this widow, right? 
And why is that? Because she keeps coming to him. She comes to him with her case again and again and again. And she doesn't try to bribe him. She doesn't try to take a plea deal. She doesn't try to make a compromise. Even though he isn't a good judge, she treats him as if he is. Even though he isn't a good judge, she treats him as if he is. She just keeps honestly laying out her case. So let me ask you this. Do you treat God as if he's a good God? Do you treat God as if he actually cares about you, as if he actually loves you, as if he's actually invested in your life? You say, I think so. I don't know. Here's how you can tell. Are you honest with him? Do you trust God to be good enough to be honest with him, completely honest with him? See, I think sometimes when we talk to God and we think about prayer, we're just so nervous about saying the right things in the right way and come with the right heart and whatever. And I'm not saying we approach our, our creator without proper respect and reverence for who he is and what he's done for us, but I am saying talk to God honestly. Talk to God honestly. It's not like he doesn't know what's actually on your heart anyways. Right? So say it. Say it often. I think so often Christians, we just like, we just want to put this mask on before God and be like, well, if he sees me as a nice Christian, following all the rules, doing the right things, then, then it's okay. No, just take the mask off. Just come honest before God. Um, many of you know, I've shared with you before, uh, that, that I, uh, I struggle with, with depression. And uh, it kind of came on a year and a half ago. And it came with two friends. Uh, it was really nice. Uh, anxiety and insomnia. And so I'd have these nights where I'd just lay in bed at night and, and I'd just go from uh, one sort of anxious thought to another, one worry to the next, one responsibility to the next, one stressor to the next. And I'd just have these like anxiety circles and I'd just lay in bed. And so as this is going on, I started meeting with a counselor and I said, um, hey, so, you know, this is happening. I'm not sleeping and I'm worried all the time. And, uh, and she said, well, have you prayed about it? She's a Christian. And I said, well, yeah, of course. And she said, but, and I said, it just seems like God just isn't doing anything about it, though. I said, I'm praying about it, but it just seems like he wants me to just kind of sit here. And she said, well, have you told God that? Have you told him that that's what you think he's doing, that that's how you feel? I was like, well, I guess. I don't know, not really. And she said, all right, well, this is what I want you to do. Get a journal. And she said, every night, write out everything that you're thinking and feeling. Just barf it all on the page. Anything that's going on in your head, anything that's happening there, just lay it all out uh, in, in the journal and, and, and make it a prayer to God. And then as you close the journal, lay down and trust that that's prayers in God's hands. And so I did that. And uh, as I was prepping for this message, I actually uh, went back over some of those. And I was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll share this with folks today. Not going to happen, man. It was like raw, like raw stuff. And I was like, you know, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that you know you're actually thinking, but you don't even want to admit it to yourself, right? Okay. No, no one else. You're all much more pious. Thank you. All right. Staring at the holies, I knew it. Okay, uh, so, um, right? It's, it's the stuff you know you've thought, but you don't even want to admit to yourself you thought. I was, I was writing all that out, and I'd say, God, I'm angry at you right now. I don't feel like you're here right now. I just feel lost. I just feel like you've, you've dropped me in the, the sauna of Texas, and, and here I am. And uh, see, some of you feel like God is distant. Some of you feel like God isn't listening to you. You treat him as, as if he doesn't care about you. Because you approach God as if he isn't there. You approach him as if he's distant. You approach him as if he isn't near. And you put the mask up. I'm telling you, pull it away. Get honest with God. He is near. He's not far. Nothing's going to change that. So lay it out there. 
Go to him often. Go honest. Tell him what's going on. It will not shock him. I guarantee it. And some of you say, okay, that's fine, Gabe, but I just have a hard time with prayer in general. Okay, that's fine, but I have a hard time praying in general. Well, so when I teach little kids about prayer, this is what I tell them to do. I say, do you have a chair in your room? And most of them do. I say, okay, just pretend Jesus is sitting in that chair and you talk to him. It's that simple, okay? Works for big kids too, okay? So you have a hard time that way. Adults, just pretend he's sitting right there. Talk to him right there. Go to God in prayer. Go off and go honest. Finally, third thing, expect change. Look with me at the next few verses. Uh, So Jesus concludes this parable and he says this. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? So Jesus says, listen, this, this judge was a total jerk and yet he still gave justice to this persistent widow. He says, God's not a total jerk and you're not a persistent widow. You're his elect child. He will definitely give you justice. He's going to respond, expect change. And as soon as I say, I don't expect change, we get a little nervous because we, of course, have had prayers not answered the way we want them to. But look at what Jesus says. He says, pray constantly, pray often, and trust that God will give justice to his elect. What does that mean? Justice to his elect. So not that God's going to give everyone what they want, but God's going to give justice to them. He's going to do right by them. That whenever you pray, God is going to do right by you. And so that means that prayer changes things. And it can change your circumstance. We've all seen God intervene. Well, maybe we haven't all seen it. I've seen God intervene in some miraculous ways and do some incredible things to change circumstances. And so we pray because pray changes circumstances. But oftentimes, it's not our circumstances that change, but it's us. But it's us. But as we regularly and honestly talk with God, he changes us through that practice. And so someone may say, okay, Gabe, you know, you're talking about prayer and, and God changing us and that he's listening and that he's there. But, but like, how do you know that's true? Like, like, how do you know that God's actually that committed to us, that, that talking to him is, is actually worth it? Well, here's how. What does Jesus call us in verse 7? God not give justice. No, you're, you're good. Jeannie, breaking my heart. Uh, will God not give justice to his elect, right? To his elect. What does that mean? Jesus is talking about the fact that God has called us. It means that God has invested in you. That, that if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him, that wasn't an idea that you came up with on your own. But it was God's spirit at work inside of you, claiming you as his own. So that you'd recognize that you're his child. Listen to Ephesians uh, 1 verses 3 to 5. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Did you catch verse 4 there? It said, he chose you before the foundation of the world. Like, like, before the world even started, God knew that he was going to claim you as his kid. That he was going to call you into relationship with him. That you were going to pray to him. That you were going to talk to him. He knew that was going to happen. And he knew it was going to happen through Jesus. And that it was going to happen through Jesus' death and resurrection. That we'd be granted access to him. 
And he knew all the suffering and all the pain that Jesus would go through before the foundation of the world. And he did it so that he'd be with you. And he knew that when Jesus was here, he'd pray a prayer. That in the garden, Jesus' soul would be in such anguish that as Matthew 26 says, he's sorrowful unto death. That he was sweating drops of blood. And that Jesus fell on his face, honest before God, and said, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And that by the end of the prayer, Jesus' circumstances didn't change. But as he closed his prayer, he got up and he accepted the path before him. So do you get what this text in Ephesians is saying? It's that God knew that he was going to go through all of that in order to get you. Before the foundation of the world, he knew the anguish that Christ would go through so that you would have access to him. He is invested in you. He cares about you. He listens to you. He listens when you pray. So talk to him regularly, honestly, and expect to see change. Let's go to him right now. Lord God, we thank you that because of Jesus, we do have access to you. That you hear us when we pray. That you speak to us, Lord. Lord God, I pray for my friends that they would come to you honestly, that they would come to you often, and that they would experience the change that you bring. Lord Jesus, help us to look for that. And pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.